this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Pierre Valencia. This word has become a fashionable insult in undignified Twitter spats. It has become so commonplace, in fact, that it seems to have acquired a new pseudo-critical potency. In contemporary art, for example, there seems to be a tacit and widespread understanding that there is such a thing as 21st century fascist art. And I'm sorry, but I'm not even exaggerating. You'll find a citation in the show notes if you don't believe me. But if there is such a thing as contemporary fascist art, it's hard to understand whether the distinguishing qualities lie within the work itself or within the artist's politics. There is, however, a lot of art that unambiguously deserves the label of fascist, this time with a capital F, because it was produced by Italian artists working under the regime of Benito Mussolini. Artistic movements that fall under the umbrellas of Italian modernism or futurism that have been admired by generations since the war are, in fact, entangled in complex ways with the fascist regime. But even then, the historical record isn't complete, and we lack the tools to know what artists believe and how they imagine their work would affirm or reject fascist ideas. Curating Fascism, a new book edited by Sharon Hecker and Raffaele Berlarida, examines the role of post-war exhibitions in building our understanding of fascist art. Exhibitions of art from the period were staged post hoc as early as in the late 1940s, and not all of them held the obvious moral line. Notions of truth and freedom became entangled in massive curatorial projects of the 1960s. The book suggests that, far from being an ambiguous, our relationship with the so-called fascist aesthetics is historically contingent and highly politicized. As ever, you'll find links to some of the projects we discuss in the show notes. Sharon, Raffaele, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having us. Hi, thank you. I'm going to start by admitting that I picked up your book slightly under false pretenses, even though I could see that the subtitle mentions Mussolini, which should have really told me that we're talking about Italian fascism. I've been spending a lot of my time lately in the kind of dark corners of Twitter and also the kind of dark corners of contemporary art and contemporary culture in which people love calling each other fascists for absolutely no reasons. But curating fascism seems to be kind of a relevant study. But before we get into the 21st century implications of everything. I wanted to ask you about your positions and your interests in Italian fascism, Italian art history, and also about the practice of history and historiography as it relates to the field of exhibition studies. So I'm primarily a scholar of 19th century Italy. From its unification, I work on sculpture, and I'm looking at it from the vantage point of the moment that Italy unifies and then what happens later as things get complicated. There's a quite a big separation in uh, Italian art history between those who work on the 19th century and those who work on mm-hmm. 20th century and post-war. And uh, what has been interesting is looking at sort of continuities and, and differences between the, the period that I have been used to working on and this period that 
I sort of fell into working with Raffaele after seeing an exhibition that sort of shocked me about the way that history is being treated uh, today in relation to the, the fascist Ventennio period. Raffaele? I'm an art historian of a slightly later uh, moment. So what I've been focusing on is uh, the uh, fascist period and the post-war, Cold War uh, moment. I'm also interested in continuity and uh, the way exhibitions shape discourse, shape memory, are tools for public rituals, but also to, to rethink what, uh, what the historical past is. So, you know, I, I worked on an individual artist who was uh, Jewish and gay, Corrado Cagli. So the kind of uh, uh, career that he had uh, under the fascist Ventennio and then how things changed uh, through time. And then I've, I've worked on um, exhibitions of Italian art in the United States, uh, again, during fascism and then in, in the post-war moment. So I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, mm-hmm. uh, in exhibition history. Yeah, and myself as a curator, I have also sort of seen firsthand the kind of way that narratives get shaped about Italian art and uh, what is of interest and what is not. And also having worked for artists, Italian artists as well, uh, seeing again how the narratives around them get shaped during the making of exhibitions. Mm. In my case, the artist that I worked on actually was forgotten during fascism. And that was an interesting question for me, why he was ignored when he returned to Italy and up to his death uh, during that period. And he was a great internationalist and he did not believe in borders and nationalities. And so clearly coming back to Italy during that moment was not a, a good choice for him. Who was the artist? Medardo Rosso. All right. Let's go back 100 years. And before we get into the historiographical and the continuities, um, let's, let's actually try to put a pen in what fascist art is. So the book looks at the period of 1915 to 35, which is this classic birth of modernity in Italian art, which has had great influences on the rest of the century, far outside of Italy. But let's maybe stay within Italy and try to put some names down and some things. What, what is happening in Italy? What is, what is being produced and what is being exhibited there and then? So the book focuses on exhibitions that were done after the fall of fascism, after 1945, but were dedicated to the period before, so during, during, during the Ventennio, right? In that moment is a moment when the, the canon of modernism was kind of crystallized. And so that's when movements like uh, futurism uh, became part of the narrative. Futurism is definitely one important component of, uh, of, our, of our story. Also, some of the artists that we were um, looking at were not voices that had been heard during fascism because maybe they were shipped off to concentration camps or they were resistant to the regime. And we were sort of thinking about what happens to those voices after the war when exhibitions begin to get put together and to think about that period. What kind of story? Is this the whole story? And um, how is it being told now after the war when sort of there's a moment of, could we call it shape-shifting or changing Mm -hmm. of positions immediately after the war? And it's difficult to go back into that period and look at what really went on because we we don't have a way to go back into it. That you've already uncovered my complete lack of training as a historian, because my first question was essentially to get you to tell me the truth, as opposed <laughs> to the truth as it was revealed in, in later excavations. But if I may insist a little bit for listeners, so they have some kind of orientation within some of the key names, what is happening in art as it meets the public during fascism? Because I think that that will become important later as we try to track the way in which this gets twisted, re-represented, rewritten? Well, there's a huge return to order and there's a huge return to nationalism. And so, of course, looking at international art is no longer acceptable or seen as a positive thing. Obviously, as those 20 years go on, there are artists who become very committed to the regime, like Cironi. There are artists who we don't understand if they were paying lip service and surviving Mm -hmm. because they had to survive. And there are artists who were resistant to the regime. So you really have a a kind of a range of names, a range of movements, a range of 
but with a great awareness also that this is not a moment that we can be speaking about the greatness of Impressionism mm -hmm. or foreign art or trying to consolidate art that actually is playing a role, a very active role in promoting Mussolini's plan of making Italy great and having a great national art movement to support it. Mm -hmm. Another important thing to, uh, to consider is that the uh, fascist regime financed a very uh, sophisticated uh, system of uh, exhibition and promotion, uh, which managed to absorb uh, dissent uh, in many ways. So even artists who were persecuted as uh, Jewish or as uh, anti-fascist, they were being also exhibited in the same moment. As long as their art was apolitical content-wise. And so it really created a messy uh, situation in the post-war moment because the way exhibitions function to create a complicit relationship mm -hmm. with, the, with the regime, both for the artists and for the public, were very difficult to untangle uh, after, after the war. Another thing that, that really happened, Sharon was mentioning the return to order, so Mussolini, you know, was supporting artists to refer to the grand past of antiquity and the Renaissance, uh, the, the Roman Empire. But at the same time, they were also flirting with uh, more advanced avant-garde arts. Earlier, I, I, I mentioned uh, I mentioned futurism or mm -hmm. uh, forms of expressionism and and other uh, stylistic anti-traditional. Uh, modes, which, you know, the most famous example would be, you know, in, in Nazi Germany, were being attacked by, uh, by the establishment. Italy never had a degenerate art show. Um, yeah. And so, again, that created a very blurry and, and messy uh, situation to understand the legacy of, of fascist art. And another aspect was this absolute aesthetic desirability and beauty of these artworks. I mean, you cannot deny that futurist mm. art is quite beautiful. And um, also the desirability of sort of um, design-related objects of the period. And, you know, Mussolini really promoting Italy as the great modern country, in addition to their roots in ancient Rome. So the Italians felt that they were marching forward as well and uh, that he was promoting that. So, I, you know, this is, makes it even messier because the art is very beautiful and yet it's very politically and historically <laughs> enmeshed and complex in a regime that was a dictatorial regime. Yeah, well, I hate to get contentious straight away, but I can see that, that in the book, both you and many of your contributors, because this is an edited volume, which of course makes it super fascinating because you have such a range of scholarly perspectives and you know for, from not only not only by any means Italy but also internationally but I can see from quite a few of your authors sort of a wariness of anything to do with beauty like the word aesthetics is, is used in a very 21st century way as a, as, as a bad thing like we, we must stay stay away from this and maybe to keep to a chronology for, for a moment still easing our listeners into the, the kind of preload of of this of the, of the whole argument I wanted to think a little bit about the kind of propagandistic use of this quote-unquote beautiful art at the time of, of the regime. So I know this is not going to be necessarily your area of expertise, but one of your contributors, Rosalind McKeever, writes about the export economy of fascist-sponsored art in, in Britain during the same kind of period. Without maybe going into too much of a detail, I, I wonder whether you could make a comparison with today, what does it politically, economically, in terms of soft power and diplomacy mean for the fascist regime to be able to mount or have some kind of involvement in international exhibiting of, of the arts? I think the, the critical stance, uh, to, to go to your first question, the critical stance towards beauty is, is, not, is not about beauty or aesthetic, but more about uh, seduction. Mm -hmm. and, and it also happens in response. So, the way the book originated, as Sharon and I started discussing the 2018 exhibition at the Prada Foundation, post Zang Tum Tum, and uh, our main reaction was how beautiful that show was, how that beauty has been uh, absorbed and turned into an integral part of uh, the branding of uh, Made in Italy and the Made in Italy mm -hmm. product. Uh, so, you know, now fashion brands from Prada to Fendi, you know, 
the headquarter of Fendi is in the our uh, uh, fascist a symbol of fascist architecture, and that beauty was also part of the of the seduction of the you know creation of uh, consensus uh, for uh, for the regime. So it's not. Uh, intrinsically bad is not there's nothing wrong uh, with uh, with beautiful object but if that beauty and seduction is a facade is a mask or is a is a tool of seduction through which the public is anesthetized and turn and 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 political awareness or criticality are destroyed or 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 are blinded somehow, yeah, by this beauty. Mm. I mean, we must say that Mussolini, it was the first time in many years that artists had sub- substantial support from the state to make art. So, of course, that was very exciting for them. And also, uh, craft was being promoted very highly by Mussolini. And in fact, we see bronzes made during fascism that are of very high quality. And clearly, he was investing, the regime was investing in ceramics and an ethic of national pride through craft and aesthetics that these artists were picking up on. And of course, they were eager to also be financed for their work. So of course, exactly what Rafael said, there is a moment when these things are so beautiful that we are not thinking critically anymore because we are so carried away by it. And that's what we started getting worried about when we saw this exhibition, is that that was the very same strategy that was used during the regime mm. to get people to buy into this political consensus. And uh, and you mentioned uh, uh, Rosalind McKeever's article about the UK, but we cannot say that there is a whole section in the book uh, about uh, exhibitions dedicated to fascist art organized outside of Italy. And that's particularly telling uh, of, uh, again, the power of seduction. Like the Museum of Modern Art in New York organized a huge exhibition of Italian art in 1949, right? So just four years after the fall of, uh, of Mussolini. And most of that art was fascist, right? There was uh, all of them, Sironi and the Futurist, blah, blah, blah. Something similar about Germany would never happen, right? The first show dedicated to Germany at MoMA would be in 1957, and no artist promoted by the regime would be there, right? So part of what we were, were, we were interested in is how that history of modernism, of fascist modernism, made it through, you know, across the Second World War and, and, and was influential worldwide. So not only the UK, not only the United States, but for example, a case study that is fascinating is Brazil. Mm-hmm. Many former fascists moved to South America, and they had an important role in establishing some of the major institutions of modern art in uh, Sao Paulo or in Buenos Aires. And so now you, you have the Museum of Contemporary Art of Sao Paulo that has this major collection of Italian modernism, mostly fascist, that was purchased with the advice of Margherita Safati or uh, Pier Maria Bardi, people who were heavily involved and major player in uh, uh, fascist uh, cultural politics. And you noticed, I think, that Rosalind McIver, even in her title, she says about the saying of the F word, that there is a <laughs> great discomfort, even today, of saying the word fascism, as opposed to this sort of facile use of the word that you were bringing up. Um, yeah. There, you know, there is this this euphemistic the art between the wars, the art uh, interwar art. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of 1930s. You know, the, the the reluctance to use that word and name it for what it was or what that period was already shows you that after the war there was some kind of strange distancing that's going on, even getting more and more layered as we get closer to today, where the art is being more neutralized and we have sort of saved the beautiful art from the period and we don't have to talk about it anymore. And, you know, as we said in the book, what happens to the 14-year-old who comes to this exhibition for the first time and learns about this period and doesn't understand at all what was going on at the time? And how do you do that responsibly? I think the fundamental question that comes out of this, and again, I'm going to pretend to be naive completely, is whether that relationship between the art, the aesthetics, is indeed one-to-one with the regime. We've had regimes of various sorts throughout the 20th century and with, with, you know, within modernity, within, within periods on which we have very good grips. You know, we know how art history moves along so with politics. I think it also would be naive to argue that today's art 
in liberal art institutions isn't being influenced by a certain type of a neoliberal regime. Rafaela, you, you mentioned that no one would ever disassociate German artistic production of the period from its underlying and then inevitable historically disaster. Would there have been any possible excuse for Museum of Modern Art staging the exhibition to which you referred so early? I think it's actually, it, this goes at the core of, of the question, and it, it's a complex one. I think that what happened in the post-war moment, uh, so people like Alfred Barr and other players in the phase called high modernism, was to draw a line and separate, right, the progressive, experimental, and, uh, and politically liberal from the conservative, traditional, and backwards-looking. And so that's why, you know, the German example, the, the Generate Art show, is the ultimate example of how things yeah. are supposed to work, right, in that, in, in that perspective. <laughs> Whereas the, the, the Italian example, it reveals in a more uh, interesting way how the modernist project was so intertwined with the, the politically conservative. And uh, today we would call, you know, colonial or even white supremacist uh, project, right? So yeah. in, in that case, very advanced and experimental and forward-looking art was part of, was, uh, was rooted in an ideology of uh, uh, nationalism and supremacy. Mm. And, uh, and that becomes visible maybe now. And still what, what this book reveals is that there is still resistance to that, right? And so that's why people don't talk about the F word. That's why people still try to say, yeah, but let's distinguish, let's separate the aesthetics from the, from the political. Uh, because people still want to believe that actually that modern uh, project is, a, is, is viable. And also, if you think about the fact that Germany really had a reckoning, it had a whole period of, the, I mean, students in school learn about it from the start as children. And yeah. it's built into the culture, this, un, this shame of what happened, whereas Italy doesn't have any of that. Basically... Right after the war, a lot of people who were involved in the regime recycled themselves, curators and dealers, and many people just, you know, went on and, and turned towards the new phase, turned a page and went on. And I think that whereas immediately afterwards, I mean, if you think about COVID, nobody wants to talk about COVID now. So immediately afterwards, it's a natural reaction yeah. to just not want to speak about it. I mean, it's so awful. And thank God we're done with that. But as you go further in time you are building greater and greater layers of resistance. And so the delicacy of that shame or that psychological sort of what my parents were doing, I think there was just recently a very rare documentary of a man who went back into his family documents to see what his grandfather had done during the war. Mm -hmm. You don't see a, a large amount of that in Italy. There is no, um, even in the schools, I mean, I am American, but my children go to school in Italy and they, yeah. that period is really not discussed in school. So. It's a larger political question of sort of how are we going to go back into that moment and, and feel, um, acknowledge also what happened, even in an exhibition. I want to go from what you said and try to trace the history of this revisionism, because in as much as I, I think I'm okay with the argument that Italy has gone in denial, as we have seen with the COVID example, societies are very happily prone to do. There is a twisted history, probably 60s onwards in Italy, which produces very, very bizarre arguments. I want to talk a little bit about the 1967 Florence exhibition, Arte Moderia in Italia, uh, curated by Carlo Ludovico Reggianti, which is, I think, the canonical piece of revisionism and rethinking. This is a show that had 2,100 pieces in it, which, honestly, I, I pity anyone trying to make sense of that. I sort of admire, but also want to condemn anyone who wanted to curate it, frankly. In one of your contributors' essays, there was a quotation from Adianti who says, during the period politically dominated by fascism, art was produced in substantial and unwanted freedom. And now, possibly at the risk of trying to maybe argue in a slightly different direction than you, I'm already struck by this idea that in the 60s, there's something to be gained from claiming that the freedom, quote-unquote, that somehow became associated with, with the fascist regime, that that is something we now have to go back and condemn. 
I find so much confusion being introduced in the historical records with so much weight in that exhibition. One of the things that we, we were trying to put in, in focus is the generational uh, shift, mm-hmm. right? So something that is very important to keep in mind when we talk about the Raganti show of 1967 is that this is an exhibition organized by an anti-fascist activist who was in jail, who fought the resistance and had a role, right, in the in the post-war moment, in the idea of how do we reconstruct, what what how do how do we resume, you know, a national uh, project and uh, put together institutions and the, decide what role contemporary art plays uh, in society after the uh, the regime. Uh, but there was a degree of uh, self-positioning there yeah. that is no longer possible today, right? So curators who are working today are, you know, people who did not experience in the first uh, first person and are uh, addressing an, a public that is, you know, second generation, third generation. So it's the stories of their parents, their grandparents mostly. And so that's part of what we've been uh, trying to, to untangle. Part of what Raganti was doing was, uh, you know, in line with the idea of, you know, a very influential uh, person in the post-war moment was Benedetto Croce, was, uh, was a philosopher, but also was, uh, uh, was a politician. And so Benedetto Croce's idea was that fascism was a close parenthesis, was uh, a moment of uh, a big mistake, was uh, in which mm. the national path derailed and so we should go back, right, to the, to the pre-fascist moment and keep going from that. So, yeah. so in a way, Raganti was trying and, and save what was possible to save and made a clear distinction between what was aesthetic and what was political. He addressed art. He put together, you know, artists who were his friends, like Carlo Levi, an anti-fascist Jewish artist who was uh, in jail, who was uh, uh, in, in exile, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. They fought the resistance together. They were in Florence, side by side, in 1942, right, as people were being deported, as the, the city was being bombed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. And so Carlo Levi is there, side by side, with artists who were actually part of the regime and part of the, the propaganda machine. And, uh, and Draganti is trying to look at work in a way that he called purely what is purely visible, what is a, a pura visibilità, what, what is the aesthetics. And one of the things that emerged from studies in the book is how for Raganti, that was actually the only way out of a propagandistic approach to exhibiting. So he was saying the curator, the ultimate curator of the fascist period, Margherita Zafati, would say that, uh, you know, a show, the most famous show was the Mostra della Rivoluzione Fascista, the uh, exhibition of the fascist revolution, mm-hmm. did not exhibit the revolution, but it demonstrated it, right? So this idea that, yeah. that a show is, 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 uh, uh, has an agenda, has a goal, and, and makes the viewer accept that. Whereas he's saying, I am doing something very different. I am presenting the art that was being produced there and then it's up to the viewer to make sense of it, right? So it's more open-ended. And for him, that was the only way to rebuild. Then the consequences that this has and, and the way this was then uh, influential and, and absorbed in curatorial practice in later generation is something that was not part of Raganti's project. But still, now, doing something like that now, it's extremely problematic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And maybe going back to your question about freedom, the myth of sort of that artists during fascism were free is probably born there unintentionally Mm. um, to sort of free the art, to free, you know, the art was free in its own way. And now we can show it again. And it was a healing process for Raganti probably to be able to do that personally, psychologically, collectively. And in fact, uh, that myth gets, you know, purified almost to the point where you know, we don't even have to think about it anymore. It's pure visibility, but we don't have to position ourselves as curators anymore. And 
actually what he did was a very strong uh, positioning, which is later we find this kind of neutralization, which says, yes, I'm just going to show you everything, but I'm not going to take responsibility for, you know, any kind of choices that I've made in this show. Um, so it's taken almost to a polarized extreme at a certain point. And, you know, back to that Croatian idea that this was just a little, you know, a little blip in the, the a derailing in the history. When I was at the Prada show in 2018, behind me at the opening were two older women who had clearly lived through the period. And they were sighing mm -hmm. to the, each other saying, oh, it was such a beautiful period if it wasn't for that little stain of fascism. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was wistful and nostalgic. Mm. So that becomes very worrisome. I'm really interested to then follow what happens after this 1960s period. Like, what does the Friganti show produce? What are the receptions? And I'm struck in particular about some of the thinking your contributor, your colleague, Luca Cotrocchi, is proposing some kind of reading in which the anti-fascism of the curator somehow guarantees a certain truth. There's, there's the references to facts, which I think are also present in the critiques of, of, of this show. How can we understand the consequences of this, this, this exhibition? And actually, in as much as exhibitions do matter, how can Italian society react to this particular cultural intervention? Hmm. I mean, all we can see is that already in the 80s, we have hmm. another wildly successful and popular exhibition in Milan. Again, an enormous amount of artwork and kind of overwhelming. I mean, the, the size of these shows also just... To, we have to remember these are not small shows. And then a sort of gradual buildup of smaller offshoot exhibitions that go on through the 90s, the thousands, the tens, the twenties. I mean, the last few years as well um, that, that are continuing to build on that, but continuing to sort of filter, filter, filter more and more. The, these questions that Raganti was putting out there actually probably quite honestly. Um, mm. So I think it was a long, um, let's say a long time in, creating a kind of a, a narrative for these exhibitions and a, and a market, I must say, for these exhibitions, they, they grow. They grow exponentially through time to reach this latest version in 2018 at the Prada Foundation, yeah. which also overwhelming, enormous, beautiful, but d drained out of the, the, I think Rosalind McKeever talks about this uh, depopulated photographs of the exhibitions that sort of reminded her back of the fascist exhibitions, you know, sort of almost <laughs> yeah. coming full circle and, and a superimposition of what was happening in the Vitenio um, has been a long uh, process of growing and developing and, and getting rooted in a public that is hungry for these exhibitions. And the question of scale is really, is really central. So we noticed that uh, major exhibitions with uh, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of works play an important role because basically they are able to initiate or catalyze public uh, discussion beyond the community of, uh, I don't know, scholars or politically active intellectuals. So it's something that gets into the mass media and the public discourse. But at the same time, they are inevitably spectacle. They are inevitably yeah. uh, overwhelming, right? There is this sense of uh, the amount of information, the amount which affects the economy of attention, right? It's hard to keep a sense of the individual trajectories of uh, uh, how you distinguish uh, different uh, kinds of experiences, right? Uh, uh, that uh, an entire period could signify depending on who you were, where you were uh, in uh, in that historical moment, and so in the in the book we also solicited case studies looking at smaller projects, uh, mm -hmm. uh, more uh, thematic or uh, or individual that establish a different uh, tone, a different uh, level of uh, of intimacy in the relationship with public, and in in, in many cases, of course, these smaller shows don't have the same ability, the same power of, uh, you know, widespread uh, impact, but uh, they can complicate, they, they, they can uh, yeah. introduce a nuance. Um, so I'm thinking of uh, uh, Luciere's piece on uh, exhibitions about women in uh, mental hospitals uh, during fascism, or uh, Maza Mengiste uh, talking about photographs in uh, yeah. uh, personal archives uh, documenting 
the invasion of uh, uh, the fascist Italian uh, fascist army of Ethiopia and the Ethiopian resistance uh, against it. These are just two examples. Yeah. There are there are several. In the, in the and Mendista did a beautiful job of creating a museum outside the museum in turn by creating a website mm-hmm. that's kind of an open museum where people, the community, can contribute to the discussion, which is. Uh, we thought a very creative way to sort of make the viewers less passively absorbing an exhibition about this period and more actively being involved in co-creating it. So I want us to get to this project in a moment, but let's still stick with the chronology. And for a little bit longer, I want to dwell on maybe this kind of materialistic approach, or materialist approach to what these mega exhibitions produce. So Basic question, who, who's paying for all of this? Like, who is behind these initiatives? And let's use this as an opportunity to segue all the way to 2018, where you've got, because Fondazione Prada is probably one of those big, big material players that is actually important to analyze today. I think uh, in addition to money, you really have to think about power and the power of the curator and the power of the curator envisioned as somebody who can get an amazing amount of works, an amazing amount of loans, do the impossible sort of heroic, Mm. and I could say male, lone male, you know, by yourself, organizing these gargantuan exhibitions. Um, That plays into it as as much as the, the money issue. You know, not the curator as facilitator of understanding, the curator as somebody who is uh, shepherding an exhibition into a, in, in a, into a narrative that is, is open to the public and, and wanting the public to somehow participate and understand, but rather the curator has focused on sort of how much I can get and that that's the sh- sign of my bravura. Yeah. And we had actually, Rafael and I gave a talk and there were some curators there and they said, well, yes, you know, that is part of the art of being a curator is getting as many great loans as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, it's a very historically fraught period. So you really have to think, you know, do I need to overwhelm and exhaust the audience with so many works? And in fact, when you got mm-hmm. to the end of the show, you were so tired that there, the very small attention that was given to the Holocaust you were too tired to absorb it because it was in the last room and you you just could barely make it through that show. And you can only imagine what Raganti's show would have been like. So, you know, as a curator, you are thinking about your audience's tolerance level. And um, this is another thing I was going to bring up earlier is the fact that really the Holocaust is, is not mentioned. And of course, we have a... Um, you know, his great historical studies now about the myth of the good Italian and that it was really only the Germans and it wasn't really in Italy. But we know that that is not true. And we know that that is a major part of the period. And one of the things that made me most sort of gave me a chill in my spine was when I realized that in the 1938 room where the racial laws had been enacted and many artists and people had to, you know, either escape or uh, were sent away, there was no mention of it in the 1938 room. So the 1938 room was a year just like any year in Italy hmm. under the regime. And, you know, you heard people saying again at the opening, oh, yes, you know, he could have done a chamber of horrors, but it would have ruined the beauty of the show if he had done that, you know. So there is the curatorial power to make a decision about what I'm going to say in that room that will signal something to an audience. And we did talk a lot about this, Raffaele, right? This could, could this have happened in a public institution and not in a private institution where they have their own funding and they're able to get these incredible loans and have the, the manpower to create this kind of massive exhibition and use a very sophisticated design companies for the exhibition design? Clearly, a public institution doesn't have that reach. And uh, speaking of this public versus private and I would add uh, the role of curators and the role of private collectors. There is another you know, layer to this uh, history in the sense that the fascist regime is probably the only moment in Italian history in which there was a systematic role played by the state, played by the government as a patron of contemporary art. Right. So there were... There was a whole system of exhibitions. Uh, they, they were called uh, Mostre Sindacali, was like the union of fascist artists that were organized locally at the level of, uh, you know, regional level. Then the finalists would go and participate in the national show at the Quadriennale in Rome. And then the best would, uh, would be placed in the international context at the Venice Biennale, right? So there was, there was a very 
clear and and well structured system of uh, state patronage that gave visibility to uh, uh, to artists and so af- and after the war nothing similar really uh, really existed italy never really built museums of contemporary art that you know could compete with uh, I don't know, the Tate or the Saint Pompidou or, or MoMA. And so what happened was that the uh, curator, people like uh, Barilli or later uh, Chalant or someone like Bonito Oliva, who's not part of this book, but they really played a role as kind of replacing the, uh, the institution, right? They become critic, curator, interpreters, uh, entrepreneurs, and they are the institution. They're archives are the most uh, you know comprehensive archives of contemporary Italian art. There's nothing like the archives of American art or the Smithsonian, right? This is one thing, right? So someone like Chelant working with uh, the Prada Foundation represents this kind of uh, weak institutional presence and replaces for that. But of course, there is a component that, uh, that is uh, determined by market, determined by national branding. The other big question is, the uh, tradition of uh, collecting uh, contemporary art uh, in Italy, which uh, historically is pretty strong. Italians, especially in the center and north Italy, have been pretty uh, strongly supporting national art. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, a critical reflection and history of how that happened uh, has never been done very much. So most of those works in the show, I don't know, now again, we are talking about the Prada Foundation in 2018. Most of the works came from from private collections. But, you know, a big question of why are so many people, why are so many Italians still, you know, having their portraits of Mussolini, these big sculptures of uh, fascist symbols in their in their living rooms and what that means uh, at a collective level. That is kind of the prerequisite for the show to happen, but is not really addressed critically of a, a very simple exercise of provenance or making making that history of where those objects were. You, you said a, a, a materialistic uh, history of art in that sense was, would be extremely helpful or uh, an institutional critique approach to this uh, object. That would, be, that would be amazing, but uh, it did not happen. And we might also add that, you know, and this came out in some of the essays, that uh, families are not eager to have too much information on the wall labels or about their grandfather who was an artist or, you know, those have also been cleaned up quite a bit. So it's very difficult to access a true history. We also don't have a lot of documents that weren't those collected by the regimes to, to, to access, to, to understand. Mm-hmm. So all of that, exactly what Rafaela says, that, you know, just even talking about how an object rolls around through history would already have been an op- opening up of that question in an interesting way. Uh, and the sad thing, I think, also is that there is still not a huge uh, level of institutional critique, and curators are probably not trained the same way as maybe in the States to be able to use an exhibition to speak about a difficult subject. Um, the whole notion of an exhibition still needs to be worked on here, uh, not just in terms of fascist <laughs> art. Right. Well, okay. We've sent Italy to the, to the dogs, really, here. You no, <laughs> it's always a good possibility. <laughs> ruled over by private <laughs> and you're a little bit undereducated. I'm sorry to hear all this. But look, I'm being facetious, but actually there is this kind of tension. You mentioned as a counterpart, the US were, sorry to take, to take a side in the culture wars, but I think we've seen for the last 10 years a complete kind of hysteria on the other side. You know, like the, the, what passes for anti-fascism is actually taken over institutions to the point of making all of these questions completely meaningless. And it is utterly naive to believe that the material interest that would have been, say, behind Fondazione Prada are somehow absent from all of this. Even in the UK, where institutions are supposedly publicly accountable, it is also completely naive to think that histories are not being mistreated like this. Let's speculate a tiny bit more on the motivations of somewhere like Fondazione Prada to stage this show. And, and particularly, I, I wonder like what, what, what it is that they might want to uh, revalidate or somehow rehabilitate as an aesthetic palette. Is, is there any mileage in being as simplistic as to say, look, a lot of us own this stuff, we have it in our collection. If we rehabilitate it in 20 years' time, we'll be able to sell it and no one will be tell us that our grandfathers bought it because they were supporters of the regime. That's very unsubtle. But I, I kind of wonder whether there isn't 
inevitably already a mirroring of the reality of the production of a lot of this work. Now, you already said that it's impossible to say whether someone really believed it or whether they simply made a living. So what can we use to, to make any judgments? I have to say that thinking about this subject a lot during the project, it's very hard to know what you would have done as an artist if you were in that period. I mean, if you had a family, if you had to survive, if you had to you know, keep your mouth shut. Would you, would you, you need to feed your family? Exactly. Yeah, like, like that's, yeah, that's the aesthetic bit. Like, like the complicity, political yes. complicity is one thing, but the actual right. aesthetics, what the damn thing right. looks like. And, and do you know, you, do you need to look at yourself in the mirror or do you split yourself in two and say, I'm, you know, I have to do this because this is what I have to do and I have to live with myself somehow. And it, it's a Im almost impossible question to untangle. So I think that's what happens with the art is that you have a very difficult time saying. That's why we opened that book with that two-sided yeah. painting by Bala. I don't know if you read that, that on one side there was the futurist painting and on the other side there was a march on Rome, very realistic, and mm. that he used to keep it in his house on the march on Rome side. So there was that two-sided two experience and um, it's, it's, it's difficult to get at it, which is you know why I was constantly despairing during the writing of this book because I said, are we really going to be able to get at it? And we are only seeing it from what the exhibition that we saw. Of course, we were too young to see Raganti's show and I had just arrived in Italy mm. for Barilla's show, so I was too young to understand. So we can only see what we see from now, you know, and that's a, that's, that's a limitation, of course. And it's hard to go back into that world because of the way it was constructed already then you know, the inability to actually find real situations that you can, you know, Raphael has been very successful in finding what one can in terms of resistance. I think that his essay about mm -hmm. anti-fascist artists is fascinating, but it's all being coded. They are all sort of uh, painting things that have an air of undecidability so that people can't quite read them the wrong way at the time. Um, yeah. If you read, you know, you see that things were excluded from places like the Venice Biennale with the excuse that, you know, uh, it wouldn't have pleased Il Duce or please, you know, could you erase that part? Because that's not so, you know, we don't have access to mm. all of that, all of the minutes, all of the <laughs> private discussions. Uh, did people not want to leave letters around because maybe something could have happened to them? You know, we just don't know. It's, it's a very hard historical moment to access. And the reverence, the almost religious, that, that's the other thing like, that we have to consider. The, the fascist exhibitions are commonly recognized, are, are the, the, the most blatant aspect of, of them are the propaganda exhibition, right? So the, the, the one I mentioned, the, the Mostro della Revoluzione Fascista, 1932, was a celebration of uh, the, you know, March in Rome and the fascist grab of power and its history, right? So... It was uh, multisensory, it was uh, immersive, it was overwhelming. People would, you know, go through rooms with the names of the martyrs of the fascist, uh, blah, blah, blah. And so that was a clear avant-gardist approach to the fascist, to the fascist revolution. But then there was also this other side of what today would be called uh, white cube art shows, in which the aesthetic autonomy, where you were mentioning Freedom, right? The idea that uh, uh, the aesthetic autonomy of the artist, their creativity is a sacred. And that existed, was there. Uh, it's uh, someone like Carlo uh, uh, Levi, uh, I mentioned, was, you know, an anti fascist, was Jewish, was, and, uh, you know, the fascist uh, police went to arrest him. And uh, he said, let me finish my painting, right? And they respectfully waited until his, his painting was completed. So there was this divide, this uh, dissociation, right, between, uh, between what, is, what is political and what is aesthetics. And so some artists, I, I, I focused on the example of Levy because I, I found it very, very interesting. He was in every major show. Uh, he was in the Biennials, hmm. he was in the Quadrinale. His work was exhibited abroad uh, in, in the United States, in, in Europe, in the very moment when he was being uh, arrested. And so he would paint in a way with, you know, there the were some uh, coded references to anti-fascist resistance. Uh, there, were, there was this kind of soft modernism, kind of expressionist side that was acceptable, but at the same time, you know, was challenging the idea of, uh, of Italian tradition and going back to the, they were called the Valori Plastici, you know, this kind of very solid yeah. volumes of uh, 
Giotto-esque uh, figures, but ultimately it was complicit. It, uh, you know, when, when Mussolini exhibited this work in New York, part of it was like, see, we, we have art shows with Jews, we have art shows with uh, modernist uh, art. <laughs> we are good. We, we are... We, we we are it's we are turning Italy into a modern country. We are turning it's a soft power, but it's also interiorized individually. That's a risk in this book was to you know have the super long figure and say, look, this is wrong, that is wrong, this is, uh, yeah. and I I hope we did not end up doing that. Right. So the idea is not judging individuals or judging uh, you know drawing a line of. Uh, who is doing things right and who's doing things wrong, but actually see those nuances and see those the dangers of how being complicit it's it's so easy and it can happen to us. It, it, it happened it, to it, us. It, it, <laughs> it does happen to us, right? So yeah. it's that's part of the process of figuring out what 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 are the tools? How can we develop the tools for, for understanding our own role in cultural production. And how can we negotiate certain tensions like beautiful art and a tragic period? How do we hold those together? N- very difficult, but how can a, a curator sort of negotiate two very conflicting feelings without falling into one or the other in a polarity, which I, that would bring out a sort of complexity. We tried with all these different essays also to show that, you know, there, there is some complex thinking around these issues. Um, uh, one of the, the wonderful examples we also had, which we put on the cover, was the, the idea, again, of going outside the walls of the museum, uh, Ijaba Shego and Rino Bianchi, and taking pictures of colonial sites in Rome with mm-hmm. African immigrants to Italy and making that connection and using other means, photography, walking around the city, you know, telling the stories of these individuals. Uh, it, there, there is a lot of thinking going on in Italy about how we can do this. So it isn't just, yeah, the finger waving. We also tried to think, how could, how could this be done differently and better? And what examples do we have of people who are doing it, but maybe haven't had such a, a large voice, exactly as you said, because they don't have the institutional power or, or funding to do um, enormous exhibitions. I don't know, maybe this is kind of a blessing for Italy, not having been part of this kind of international manufactured and organized decompression moment, which has now encompassed so many other both present and imagined wrongs of, his, of history, some of which are our responsibility, many of which we, we, we might as well just start crying about. But I think in the book, you, you actually show some of the subtlety, but it's very interesting to see that every time you cite someone from more than 10 years ago, they have their fingers stretched out very, very firmly. Like that's like, like all the curators you mentioned, they, they are very, very keen to be, to be on the right side of what they are, the history they are writing. But you already mentioned Italy's misadventures in Africa and, 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 its, and its legacies, and you already both mentioned Matt and Gister's project. So I, I wonder whether we could come back to this and to end with some of the more innovative proposals for artistic exhibition or quasi-exhibition engagements with this historical period that, that, you, that you also give some space to in the book. Yeah, I mean, one of the ideas I had, which was my essay, was to imagine sort of the artist studios and using going into their studios because I felt that we had to get back to the individual artist, the one who... Mm-hmm. changed their mind, the one who had a complete about face, the one who thought they were supporting the regime and suddenly had to escape, like the the Hungarian photographer who suddenly, she had built Mussolini's career through her photographs, and then as, because she was Jewish, she had to, so there were so many individual mm-hmm. stories that could have been told, again, without creating that judgment in a way that, you know, empty studios of artists who had been deported, uh, and even the the idea of how hard it is to get into these worlds and admitting that because the photographs of the studios are probably also extremely constructed to be protective. Yeah. Um, but we also saw, for example, with Maza, how wonderful it was uh, in our interview with her because she wasn't just representing what had happened, but she was making extremely sensitive curatorial choices. For example, that she did not want to have images of these women, the photographs showing Italian men with these women, you know, in in any kind of compromising position, because she said, I don't want to shame them twice. I don't want to bring back the memories in that way. And so already you have somebody who's curating, who is thinking about what they're doing and why they're doing it and what is the purpose and not just sort of putting things out there. And we thought that was a really kind of innovative way of 
the curator being caring. Again, Lucia Rey is also an example of the women, was a, a good example of the kind of more dialogic, more sensitive to what these women had been through in the insane asylums. So we really were thinking of modes of curating that, that were more relational, more empathetic, more trying to understand the individual rather than creating an overwhelming sort of what life was like in Italy or, you know, for whom? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why we also had the essay on the, the queer position, which doesn't come out usually in these exhibitions. And we thought that was a really interesting question. Why, why isn't there an emphasis in these exhibitions on other figures who were marginalized or who had difficulties in that period. Does that take away from the exhibition or does that enrich it with more viewpoints? Uh, yeah, the, the last two sections of the book are dedicated respectively to invisibility. So things mm -hmm. that have been traditionally left out. Uh, so it's blind spots, but also things that are there, but uh, are like overexposed, but uh, never really uh, addressed. And then possible curatorial approaches, possible strategies. And I think that these two uh, elements uh, go uh, side by side because in part what is, uh, I, I would say, a thread that goes across these two sections of, uh, of the book is an analysis of the, the institutions. of the. So what are the archives? Where are the archives? What kind of material was collected and what kind of material was not collected. So again, going back to Maza's piece, soldiers from Italy were sent to Ethiopia and instructed to use the camera as a weapon. The idea was that they would go, they would photograph and then bring back a documentation of how backwards, uh, allegedly, this uh, you know uncivilized country was and so how actually fascism was bringing infrastructures was bringing modernity was bringing and then there was a systematic effort at uh, collecting archiving uh, and making that perspective documented right so major archives today you know the uh, archivio di stato in italy is in Eur, in one of those big fascist buildings, right? So the, the uh, national memory is, 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 uh, is there. It's uh, like a, it's visibly uh, part of that project. On the other hand, she was saying, I go to, I try and, and get the comparable documentation from the Ethiopian side, and it's so hard to, to find. And so that uh, her book is entitled the, uh, the Shadow King. And so she was, she talks a lot in the book, but also in, the, in this uh, conversation about the role of shadows, right? So the idea of how do you look at these documents and understand, you know, the wrinkles of history, the shadows of history, what has been erased systematically, and then how can an exhibition, one, acknowledge absence and make it visible, right? And so that's why we were talking about uh, institutional critique, right? Yeah. The provenance of objects, the material history of objects that could be, could reveal those uh, pockets of shadows, those wrinkles in the construction of historical narratives. And another thing that we really focused on almost as a method is dialogue between the two of us, because we thought that that already breaks down the dictatorial monolithic voice of the curator because in a kind of dialogue with each other and to keep each other honest and to push on each other's ideas already you are doing something different probably in a curatorial sense that would also be an innovative way I mean we thought the whole book which is why we wrote our, our chapter in different voices because we thought that that could actually play an ex extremely good role in institutional critique within the curatorial project as a curator not just because I want to do something but Let's talk about what what we are doing and what are you doing and why are you doing that and you know bring bring each other back to a position of sort of on intellectual honesty. Yeah, the entire uh, book project was developed uh, in a conversational way between the two of us, but and also with the other authors. With so the authors. We, we had a, a three day workshop in which everyone would share, you know, their e progress. So you know, often papers are delivered when they are complete and mm. voila this is my my thing uh we decided to have a more you know initial stage conversation so that the various voices would be responding to uh, to one another in a discursive way that does indeed come across in the book and i think this is what makes it such a surprising read you know my with the much more familiar history of german art of the period one understands the repercussions kind of almost automatically but but given that 
modernism and futurism continue to be kind of glorified in international scholarship or, or art school training, it is strangely uncomfortable to see such basic questions being addressed. Sharon, Rafaela, thank you so much for, for this dialogue, both in the book and, and the trialogue with me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Yeah. Curating Fascism, Exhibitions and Memory from the Fall of Mussolini Today, edited by Sharon Hecker and Rafaela Betarida, is published by Bloomsbury. I'm Pierre Dalancet, and the other was Marshall Pope. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. Thank you.